All right, welcome everybody. We're talking about Dogecoin and you know NFTs. No, just kidding. Actually, we're talking about famous divorces. No, for three. No, we'll pass on that. But welcome to Disrupt TV. It's been a very interesting week, and uh, we're going to do some quick intros in the green room. Uh, we also want to thank our sponsors, Robots and Pencils, and IFS, who's joined us today um, for the next three months, and we're really excited to have their sponsorship. Um, all right, so Nicole, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today with you? Oh, good question, Ray. Well, the easy part is I'm joining you from fabulous Big Bear City, California, um, also known as my uh, work from home hostage uh, office set. Um, as far as what we're going to be talking about today, well, I think that's entirely up to you and Vala, but I got a few things up my sleeve that uh, have a little bit to do with uh, kind of the future of work, but also how we think about things like digital products. Very, very cool. That's awesome. All right, Ben, where are we calling in from? What are we talking about today? Hi, Ray. Uh, yeah, I'm calling in from Cape Code, Massachusetts, Falmouth Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Uh, and I'm talking about this thing you can see over my shoulder here, maybe, the cover of our new book called Monster, How to Tame the Machines that Rule Our Lives, Jobs and Future. So I hope we'll get into a little bit of that as well while we, uh, while we talk about the future of work and all, all things tech. <laughs> We're so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. Darren, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about? And hopefully we're not interrupting your dinner. No, it's no problem. So I'm just outside London in the UK. And um, I thought we'd talk a little bit about um, something that we at IFS think a lot about, which is the, the moments of service. So uh, oh, yes. Yeah. Wonderful topic. All right, we've got a wide range future work, CX, whatever. And L, you're gonna take, do the honors. Let's get going. All right, three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host Ray Wong. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business and breaking news in just a couple of months, his new book comes out, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Ray is a regular television business and technology news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, and Cheddar. He's a, a global sought after keynote speaker. And in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm really excited to have my co-host and founder and friend, Bala Afshar. He's the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. When he's not hosting or keynoting or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him on Business TV. You can find him in different outlets such as Bloomberg and posting meaningful insights at ZDNet. But it's not about us. It's always about our wonderful guests. Who do we have it to kick off today? Uh, Ray, we're honored to have an exceptional CEO as our first guest, Darren Roos, CEO of IFS. IFS helps businesses be their best when it really matters, at the moment of service. And that's what we're going to learn about in our first segment. Darren's vision spearheaded the transformation of the company's internal, uh, internally through modernization and digital transformation, and externally with promise of delivering value to customers and putting them at the heart of the IFS business and product development strategy. Darren built his career in global software businesses over 20 years. Previously, he served as president of SAP's global ERP cloud business with prior roles as chief, general manager of Northern Europe and chief operating officer of EMEA, 
for the company. Darren also was formerly the president of EMEA APG LATAM at Software AG, during which time he also served at Software AG's group executive board. You can follow Darren on Twitter at Darren Roos, D-A-R-R-E-N-R-O-O-S. Welcome, Darren, to the Shrock TV. Thanks, Father. Great to be here. Thank you, sir. I feel a bit ripped out without a book, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's write one together on Moments of Service. I think that'd be great. So, it would be. It would be. But, uh, but yeah, hey, we're excited to have you. I've been following IFS since, I say, early 2000s. Um, definitely very, very different company today. You guys have transformed a lot of areas. And you've got 10,000 customers, right? Talking about Carlsberg, yeah. Beer, Rolls-Royce, Panasonic. Um, and so you got a good idea of what's going on with transformation and new business models. But there's a big topic here that we've been talking about for some time, and I want you to go deeper on servitization. Why is this a big concept, and what is driving everybody to jump into servitization? Yeah, so look, I think the thing that's affecting most business people today is that, uh, you know, if you're the CEO of a business, you're looking at new ways to grow and differentiate your business. And what servitization brings is a really unique way to get closer to your customer, um, de-risk the, the risk of disintermediation. Um, it's a model which clearly over time is more profitable, more sustainable. And I think another topic is that in, in many cases, when it comes to manufacturing servitization use cases, it's also less waste, which again fits in well with uh, you know, the topic of sustainability, which is, is, is so top of mind at the moment. We look at customers of ours like Rolls-Royce, really going from this model of manufacturing uh, air, you know, airplane motor engines um, to renting them by the hour or, or, or renting them. Um, and that servitization model we see picking up uh, more and more momentum for all of the reasons that I've just referenced. I've heard you, Darren, say in the past that customer satisfaction is the best indicator of long-term success, followed by you know revenue stats and other business metrics. But customer satisfaction is something you personally deeply care about. There is a validation of your belief in IFS uh, valuing customer satisfaction. IFS is a Gartner Peer Insights customer's choice for cloud ERP for product-centric enterprises. So you're, you're living your mantra and your core beliefs. Um, this notion of IFS moments of service uh, positioning is clearly aimed at bringing customers to the forefront, uh, but, uh, but that's not alone. Uh, companies need to think differently about their businesses. Can you talk about IFS moments of service and why you so deeply care about customer satisfaction and customer loyalty? Sure. You know, I think when I go out and I chat to customers, especially um, C-level executives, one of the things that I talk to them about is, is have they thought about what that moment or, or multiple moments of service are? And what that is, is it's the moment when all of the things that you do in your business, how you manage your, your customers, your assets and your people in order to create that, that inflection point, that moment of service as we refer to it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's important because there isn't an industry today that isn't being disrupted. Um, and many of, of today's business models in many industries have survived for decades, long before we had the internet or before we had cloud computing. And I think that what we're seeing is, is these factors mean that the traditional barriers to entry um, don't exist anymore. The rules of the game have changed. So what, what really is happening now is, is that, you know, the, the, the C-suites are having to think about how they innovate for the, the new rules of the game, given the technology that's available today. And I think that that's particularly important. So what we really focus on is, is how do we help customers to focus on that moment of service and look at business models that create moments of service 
which then creates a, a, a model which is more sustainable and profitable over time. And, and how much did the pandemic accelerate or heighten the sense of urgency in terms of moments of service becoming boardroom discussions where now the CEO is collaborating with you. It's not just a chief information, chief digital, chief technology. Moment of service is now incredibly important in terms of the brand and the promise that companies make, especially during uncertain times, which for us has been over a year and a half now. Can you talk a little bit about the pandemic accelerating the need to understand the real value behind delivering at the moments of service? Yeah, so it's a great point, Vala. I think that we saw a number of trends accelerating with the pandemic. Um, you know, the one that is is very relevant um, across every industry is obviously this, this this uptake in cloud computing for all of the obvious reasons, people not being able to get into their own data centers anymore, um, or at least being aware of the fact that they might not be able to, and therefore taking advantage of, of cloud computing options. Um, but I think that every industry, certainly every CEO that I've chatted to over the last, you know, 14, 15 months that this has been going on, um, is thinking very hard um, about the way that their business model uh, has changed and could be challenged um, or disrupted in, in the context of the pandemic. Um, and I think that, you know, whether it's somebody who had a big factory and now the factory's not operating at full capacity, so they've they've got some kind of mind space to think about this, um, or whether it's someone who's, whose business has just completely changed, like an airline. Um, you know, all of them are thinking about, you know, the. I, I think if I take a step back from this, you know, before COVID, um, a lot of people thought that their business and their industry was bulletproof. Um, and COVID has introduced this reality that it's just not. Nobody is completely secure. And there have been people who have benefited from it. But even the industries and businesses that have benefited have still uh, have a much more, um, uh, you know, vivid realization that they could also not be secure if a different set of circumstances that prevailed. So, you know, I think that's what's really forced this topic to the fore. Absolutely. This is a great point. And I think when you think about business transformation, there's definitely levers that you have to think about. Um, sometimes it's got to be consumable, right? It can't be too big of a project. Uh, and sometimes when it comes to an area like servitization and moments of service, what are those important levers? Because a lot of executives are still trying to figure out what's the right playbook, how to get started. So look, I think one of the pitfalls, especially when you're talking about technology a lot, is that there is a temptation to kind of rush into, uh, you know, how do I use AI? How do I use IoT? How do I use augmented reality? Um, and, and that absolutely is, is the wrong thing to be doing. You know, we really advocate when you think about those, those levers, as you, as you put it, don't start with the technology. Um, you know, we're big advocates of understanding the moment of service. And, and we believe that that's, you know, ubiquitously relevant, irrespective of the industry and the company. Uh, and, and, and what's key is when does it happen? You know, is it when you deliver the product? Is it when your, your, your customer is ordering the product? What are your moments of service? And, and then critically, once you understand what those moments of service are, and I can tell you guys, very often I, I speak to CEOs who've never thought about it. They understand the concept of customer service. They understand the concept of delighting their customer, but they haven't thought about the moment at which it happens. And once you understand the moment and you understand when it happens, then it's easier to get your head around what are the parts of the organization that you need in order to make it happen. Don't think in silos, put it end to end. And then you look at the technology. What are the digital skills and capabilities um, that the business needs in order to serve that customer? 
Um, and don't underestimate the importance of really understanding what your customers are looking for. What is the outcome that they want? Um, and critically, you know, my last tip would be don't be constrained by the conventional wisdom of the industry. Because if we look at, you know, retail banking today or if we look at the taxi industry or, you know, you can go on loads of different industries. The construction industry even, you know, conventional wisdom is not going to get you to the top anymore. That's amazing insights. And, you know, IFS serves so many sectors, so many industries. So you're able to understand and capture best of breed thinking and capabilities and cross pollinate across industries. And I think that's one of the uh, strengths that IFS has. Can you, uh, and I love the advice you just gave, you know, understand the jobs to be done from the customer's perspective and then recognize moments of service, those moments of truth where you can engage in a meaningful way to add value. Um, and that's hard to do because you have different lines of business. Many organizations still operate in silos. They don't have shared data. They don't have single source of truth of their customer. And I think this is where the technology and leadership that IFS brings can absolutely make a difference. Can you talk to us about how IFS kept those levers front of mind in designing its value proposition? Because you guys are crushing it. You're doing, I mean, <laughs> compared to your competitors, you're ahead. And how it's different from a CEO's point of view, how have you shaped the culture, the talent, the process, and perhaps last the use of technology to really bring meaningful, valuable uh, benefits to your clients? So look, I think one of the things is that we really live this moment of service concept ourselves. Yeah. So we have a very strong voice of the customer program. We've identified where our moments of service are uh, with our customer. We believe that in our business, there are six of them. Um, and we measure the customer interaction um, and their satisfaction with the engagement with us during those six moments. Um, and then we strive to make them all outstanding. So it comes down to really being focused on the outcome and value that our technology delivers to the customer. Um, it necessitates an understanding of, of their end customer. In other words, our customer's customer and what they need. And the only way to do this is really to stick and, and focus in the industries where we have experience. And, you know, you touched on it, Vala, that we do quite a lot across a number of industries, but they're all asset and service centric industries. So, you know, we, we don't serve retail, we don't serve uh, insurance or banking or anything like that. We're only in these asset and service centric industries. And then really looking at how we build technology, which enables those use cases so that it's very end user focused um, and make sure that, you know, the technology is easy to deploy, easy to use, uh, has a compelling ROI. Um, but I think that the key is really us living that mantra of the moment of service mattering. Um, and, and hopefully, and, and you know, you touched on our Gartner Peer Insight scores earlier. You know, we have world-class, you know, peer best peer insight scores um, across field service management, asset management, and ERP because we live this mantra. I heard you say in an interview that, and it was guidance to business leaders that deployment times has to be measured in, in weeks. We no longer have the luxury of years of deployment time. Do you believe that the insights you capture across serving so many of your clients enables, uniquely enables IFS to partner with companies so that they can actually recognize value in weeks, not many, many months or years? Yeah, look, I think the industry's changed quite a lot. You know, you, you said earlier, I've been doing this for 20 odd years. And, you know, th there was definitely 20 years ago, there was a real focus on, you know, how do I customize the software to, to yeah. suit my business? Um, 
and and you know at varying degrees of the spectrum over the last 20 years you you hear executives still use that language however increasingly now and and actually the more senior people you're talking to the greater the realization that they need to drive the technology fit to standard now fit to standard is great especially in complex solutions like ERP and EAM and FSM if the vendor is a specialist in that industry and they have the functionality to do it out of the box because if you can't if you, if you don't have the standard functionality then frankly the the concept of fit to standard is 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 redundant so you know that's why we're very focused only on the industries where where we feel we have that competence um, and where we have great case studies and then we want to drive best practice into the customer and that's when you when you can do that and you have a customer that is focused on on time to value then the projects are quicker they are capturing value more quickly, um, and and then then it works. Speed is such it. an important currency. It's it's I I don't without exception every executive that I collaborate with, time to value is absolutely top of mind. Go ahead, Ray. Yeah, no, let's take an area where you guys are putting some expertise to work. Uh, going back to a comment you made a couple of weeks ago about sustainability and uh, putting out a sustainability module, talking about what that impact's going to be. Uh, why don't you spend some time talking about um, your efforts, uh, your customers' efforts, and what you're doing at the industry at large? Yeah, so look, I think it's a topic that, um, interestingly, when, when, when we talked about it internally with an IFS, um, there was a tremendous amount of support from the IFS community, you know, our, our, our own employees, um, our customers, um, our partners, with a real passion for, for sustainability. And what we realized, and, you know, this is something that both of you will be familiar with, um, is, is that we have so much data in our systems, um, which provides a, a, a platform for customers to significantly improve the way in which they, they get visibility into their business. Um, and, you know, if, if, if what you're looking for is emissions data or you're looking for raw materials data, uh, you're looking for carbon footprint data, all of that data sits in these systems already. Um, and many of our customers are spending a lot of money and, and, and burning time and effort trying to find the data in order to now fulfill their reporting obligations. So the first thing for us was let's build a solution that our customers can leverage in order to get more efficient reporting, better insights into their sustainability initiatives, which is going to enable them to come up with, you know, more effective plans. Um, and then, you know, we've taken on our own charter, which is to become carbon neutral by 2025, make sure that we're driving a really strong corporate social agenda, which we already do. We have a significant foundation in, in Sri Lanka. Um, and then the third piece, which is one that is, 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 you know, one that I think is a great bit of, of fun, is also that we have um, a, a new ambassador who is the United Nations patron of the seas, Lewis Pugh. Um, and we're oh, doing yes. some great work with Lewis in really just raising awareness um, of the, the, the climate challenge. And, you know, it's a good way for us to take it into customers, introduce the concept. Um, and then the last thing I should say is, is that we're not doing the sustainability module um, as a way to generate uh, profits um, because we'll be contributing most of the proceeds from that to, to charities that are focused on sustainability anyway. So, you know, I think it's oh. a good kind of three-pronged approach to it. That's no, terrific. it's wonderful. You're, you're doing good. You're providing options for your customers to do good. And more importantly, you're helping with the uh, UNSDGs. So thank you That's very terrific. much. That's terrific. Values create value. That's I applaud you for doing that. Uh, Darren, my last question. So I'm a, new, I'm a CEO, a prospect. Uh, uh, I'm not an IFS customer, but I just read the Gartner Peer Insights, and I see you're a leader in, the, in, in your space. And I love this notion of moment of service. When I engage with you, uh, it's a new CEO, new company. So I'm just starting out uh, on my journey of becoming a moment of service driven company. What advice would you give myself and my company? How do I start? Yeah. 
So one of the things that we do, and you know, this is a lesson that I learned over the last kind of decade, is that we we genuinely focus on not selling technology. It's not the approach that we take. Um, we we have a, a value engineering, a value assessment process that we go through with the customer. Um, and really, if someone's interested, you know, reach out to IFS. Uh, you can reach out to me on on at Darren Ruiz. Um, and, and what we do is we go in and have a conversation with that customer about their moment of service, and we literally work back from there. So what is that moment of service? What are the parts of the organization that we need to help orchestrate in order to create that moment of service? Um, we then quantify, you know, empirically, what are the value drivers, right? What are, what are the specific areas of the business that we can drive value, whether that's cost reduction or, or, or incremental revenue streams, risk mitigation, whatever that is, we quantify that in our value assessment model. And from that, we then back into our scope tool and the technology. But the technology is the last thing that we deal with. It's always focused on where is the quantifiable value. Very nice. Very Liz nice. Miller asked the important <laughs> question down there. Uh, yeah. Definitely, she has the last word. Uh, but we are here with Darren Ruse, CEO of IFS, legendary software veteran, and more importantly, uh, a human, humanizing moments of service, especially in a digital world. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks for being on the show. And thank you for IFS for your sponsorship of the show. So Thank you, Darren. Have a wonderful evening. You too. All right, that was awesome segment. Uh, our next guest is Ben Pring, Vice President, Head of Thought Leadership and Director of Cognizant Center for Future and Work and author of Monster, a tough love letter to the machines that rule our jobs, lives and future. Uh, ben co-founded and leads the Center for the Future of Work at Cognizant. And uh, he's a co-author of uh, previous best-selling and award-winning books, What to Do When Machines Do Everything and Code Halos, How the Digital Lives of People, Things, and Organizations Are Changing the Rules of Business. Ben sits on the advisory board of the Labor and Work Life Program at Harvard Law School. Uh, ben was the Bilderberg meeting participant. Uh, he was named as one of the 30 management thinkers to watch in 2020 by Thinkers 50. Ben was recently named a leading influencer on future of work by Onalytica. Uh, ben was also uh, has uh, has been a uh, uh, has received the Gartner prestigious Thought Leadership Award. His work has been featured in Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, London Times, and many other major publications, including Forbes and Fortune. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Benjamin Pring, B E N J A M I N P R I N G. Welcome, Ben, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Val. Thanks, Ray. Great to be with you guys. Great to have you here. You know, we're excited to have you. Um, we've had you at conferences. We've seen you speak. You've been all around the world. You're at Davos and other interesting spots. Um, <laughs> and you've been talking about technology for quite some time. And now you call technology a monster that we can't yet tame. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about why that's the case and, you know, why is this a monster, even though we might have created the monster? Yeah, yeah. No, well, we've been obviously writing about leading edge tech for a long time, as you guys have been talking about it for a long time. And, uh, you know, wrote about big data, and wrote about AI. And uh, when we were out promoting the last book, the one you mentioned, Val, what to do when machines do everything, you know, we ran into this sort of strange situation where we were talking about, uh, you know, how AI was becoming a business tool. This is back in 2016, 2017. A lot of people then sort of still thought it was the kind of remit of science fiction and, and TV. But, you know, we were pointing out it was real. It was going to become a, 
a differentiating mm. business tool for people. But what we ran into in those discussions in you know conferences all around the world back in the days when we could travel and in boardrooms uh, was that people were really kind of anxious about the role of technology sure. uh, in separating winners from losers, in separating um, you know the kids who are going to thrive and the kids who are going to struggle. You know, many times we'd be talking to a, a CEO and he you could tell he was thinking about this in the context of his kids. You know, how are his kids going to do in the future? Mm. So there was a very real sense that whilst we're kind of evangelists, you know, like yourselves, you know, we see the upside in a lot of technology, that wasn't the perception that was um, universally shared. And as we thought more about that, we felt this, um, you know, pressing need really to kind of, steer into this a little bit more rather than run away from it rather than just sort of telling the you know kind of utopian side of technology to look a little bit more at the flip side of it the dark side of it and and the more we looked at that the more we realized that whilst no one single technology is the monster the combination of a lot of technologies and the way that we as humans are using them are producing increasingly monstrous results monstrous outcomes and it's most sharp in areas like social media, where, mm. you know, again, in the in the COVID pandemic, social media has been a fantastic tool for, um, you, you know, um, connecting people and cre creating community. And while, while we're all locked down like this, but at the same time, only the most sort of Pollyannish, or the most utopian, the most, um, you know, vested interest would say that the dark side of social media, you know, uh, uh, kids being bullied, trolling, uh, body sure. dysmorphia, addiction, uh, suicide, all, all these dark forces are, are really very, very present and, and are monstrous. And, and we as technology, um, you know, people who've worked in technology all our lives, like you guys, who love technology, we think it behooves us to kind of think about this and talk about this um, rather than run away from it. Because if we don't, then the worst case scenario is the tech that we love is going to increasingly be kind of seen, you know, as the bad the bad guy in this story. It's increasingly going to be sort of identified on the wrong side of history. And that's why we, you know, written this book to offer some thoughts and some advice and kind of recommendations on what we can do to stop this monstrous kind of outcome and make sure that technology stays, you know, in a good place. Hashtag tech for good. Hashtag tech for good. It's 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 brilliant to see a um, an accomplished, award-winning tech insider, you know, tackling such an important issue. So, what did you feel was missing from today's conversations uh, around around? you know, the, the, the good and the bad side of, of, of technology and its rising power. Yeah. Well, I think since we started writing the book, and you, you guys know how long it takes to write a, get a book oh my, published, yes. um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, look at any website today, look, open any newspaper today around the world. There's a story around uh, regulation of tech, break them up. Um, uh, European regulations around um, AI. So when we started writing, policy people, regulators, politicians weren't really thinking about this. Fast forward to now, and they absolutely are. But what we observe still is that there's a kind of dearth of an absence of good ideas about what we can actually do about it. There are a lot of people now kind of acknowledging the problem 
There are a lot of people admiring the problem, not many people actually making recommendations and thoughts about what we should do about it. And, and that's really what we're offering uh, in the book. You know, it's a good point, right? We are seeing um, this reevaluation. We've had time to understand the impact of technologies, and it's almost as if the com com combinatorial effect of tech being in every part of our lives has been actually creating an interesting, heated, rising power, right? When we think about yeah. what's happening. So, but yeah. what's missing from the conversation? What should we be? What questions should we be asking as consumers, as citizens, as individuals, right? What, what's important here? Well, I think there's a number of aspects to it, Ray, and there's a different, you know, obviously it's a very complicated hairball, uh, hairball and kind of un unpeeling this is difficult. What we've tried to do in the book is to offer some kind of macro thoughts that really are sort of policy recommendations, but also then offer some thoughts at a micro level, things that we as individuals can do. Can do. And, and just to sort of, uh, uh, you know, give a couple of examples of that, at the macro level, we think it's about time, certainly in the US and, and probably to be mirrored in other parts of the world as well, that we have what we call a federal technology administration. Uh, because if you know the charter of the FTC and the FCC in America, it's not really to look at these sorts of issues. It's not to look at data. It's not to look at algorithms. It's not to look at anonymity. It's really not to deal with any of the fundamental issues that we need to kind of grapple with. So we think it's, uh, you know, it's time as a hundred years ago, of scares about food and pharmaceuticals as they came into the mass marketplace, the FDA was created. It's the type time we have an FTA to really get on top of this, begin to bring people into this discussion from all different sort of walks of the, of the discussion to really be able to frame the, the rules for the next generation of competition. Um, I mean, one simple analogy we use that if you know if you buy the, the logic that we spent the last 25 years laying the tarmac of the information superhighway, you know we're going to in the next 25 years put in place the the stop signs and the red mm. lights and the road markings so we can begin you know continue to go down this information superhighway, aka the the internet, aka the cloud, but not kill ourselves, not blow things up in the process. So that's a kind of macro level thought. A micro level thought is um, just in the way that we as individuals engage uh, online. Um, uh, you know, many people, the vast majority of people don't still don't. We do, you know, tech people do, but the vast majority of regular civilians don't really understand how their data is used, how it's monetized, what they're giving away. And a lot of our thinking has been influenced by Shizana Zuboff. Uh, I'm sure you've read Surveillance Capitalism. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, it's a super, super important book. I think it's going to become one of the most, you know, canon canonical books of our time because she's really brought into the uh, into focus just the stakes that are in play here and the role of data. And again, I think that's really important that individuals understand that and understand how they should manage their own data uh, rather than literally giving it away for free, not realizing the value it has. Yeah, no, we are definitely seeing some uh, you know, important issues come about you know, with surveillance capitalism. I think that's going to be important. There's some responsibilities that leaders have to do in terms of shape technologies. Uh, to better serve society. What do you think they should be? Like, are there frameworks? Are there guidelines that we should talk about? I know you have some in your book that, that kind of yeah. give us a start for policymakers to think about. 
Well, one of the most important, I think, and, and Valerie, you'll be interested in this. This was kind of semi-inspired by, um, I saw Mark, uh, Mark Benioff at the uh, New York Times AI conference in Half Moon Bay, I think it's about three years ago now. And he said in that public forum uh, that he thought uh, uh, social media was akin to cigarettes. <laughs> and you know that was a pretty um, you know stark bold thing to say in front of, in front of a room of uh, Silicon Valley insiders. Um, but you know there's a, there's a huge amount of truth to that. Uh, and I, again, I think only the sort of most um, one-eyed kind of uh, vested interest holding person would den deny the truth of that. And I think one of the one of the most important things we could do, it's perhaps one of the most controversial ideas in the book, is to introduce an age limit for social uh, media. Um, if you think about it, we don't allow 13, 14, 15 year olds to drive a car, get married, drink, join the army, vote, uh, buy a firearm, but we put these incredibly powerful technologies in the hands of kids and let them go crazy, and then we stand back in amazement that things have gone what, what crazy. What could go wrong? What could go yeah, wrong? It's absolutely obscene. I think in history, it's going to come to be seen as a moment of complete insanity. And I feel again, um, a lot of this, a lot of the the thinking, the book is really inspired in a very personal way. You know, we're all we're working in business. We're talking about business issues, but this is a personal issue because you know, as a tech evangelist. I was all for giving my kids uh, phones and social media when they were 10, 11, 12. I overrode my wife's objections to doing that. Oh, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. And I, and I feel like people like us have used our kids almost as guinea pigs in a grand experiment that's played using their minds. And I think that's a huge problem. And I think there's all sorts of evidence you can see in the world, the real world today, um, in how wrong that's gone. So I think we need to try to begin to wrench back control of this by saying um, there should be an age limit. You should be 17. And we can debate whether it's 16, 17, 18. But 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds are too young to be on, this, on these platforms using these tools, being played with as guinea pigs. And I think we need to educate kids like we educate them, you know, to take a driving test. And I think we should have a social media user license, like a driving license, which can be revoked if you screw up. If you, you know, if you, mm -hmm. call, if you do, you drive drunk or you cause a car crash, your, your license can be revoked. I think we so need to bring that same philosophy into these incredibly powerful machines that we know can be fantastic, Sure. But we also know can be, you know, cause real problems. And I think it's up to us, technology people, to, to, to deal with this. And if we don't, in another generation's time, non-technology people, people who don't like technology as much as we do, are going to come in and regulate this. And I think that's going to be a problem for technology when that happens. Sure, sure. Very, very, really strong points, Ben. Really strong. Um, about three years ago, my company made a decision to hire uh, ethical and humane use of technology senior executive um, uh, to help guide our development uh, methodology, uh, making sure that we're building products that will advance society and, and, and serve as, as, as goodness. Um, 
And I've, you know, I've been in design review meetings early on as we're thinking about what we build and there's spirited conversations about ethical use of technology. And, and, and I, I wonder, you called your book uh, a tough love letter. Uh, do, do you anticipate that um, these will be tough conversations that you need to have with creators of technology at the very beginning, in the design phase, not you know, not after the fact, to ensure that you have um, an ethical compass, a, 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 a north star that can guide companies in terms of what capabilities they bring to market. Yeah, no, it's a great point, Bar, and, and I absolutely applaud Salesforce for doing that. And I think it's uh, it shows a lead to a lot of companies. Uh, and I think more and more companies are are putting in place roles like that. Um, again, uh, you mentioned the, the the book that we wrote in 2014, Code Halos, when we were sort of pointing out how data was being used to personalize services and um, experiences. And we wrote a chapter in that book called "Don't Be Evil 2.0," and we, in in the in the hope and the inspiration that there would be a sort of self-regulating aspect to this, that businesses wouldn't act unethically because they'd be sort of exposed in the marketplace. And looking back on that, that seems now, to, frankly, a little bit naive, to be honest, and to be you know frank about it, because we can see a lot of companies haven't acted particularly well in using the, the power of these machines. So I think, again, we're at a point where something like an FTA, something like a US data authority needs to be established to really create um, and oversee and adjudicate and then prosecute what the rules of ethical use are. Because again, they're gonna differ widely in the marketplace. That's fine and, and the market will um, sort of adjudicate those themselves. But I think absolutely the notion of algorithm bias audits, uh, the notion of, um, uh, of really looking into the algorithms that are increasingly making decisions about whether a mortgage is approved or denied, that's absolutely the right thing. Some companies will do it out of the spirit of um, that ethical compass, that North Star that you, you touched on. And frankly, a lot of companies won't. Um, that's why we have laws. That's why we have rules, uh, not for the good guys, but for the bad guys. Ben, do you think given the political climate in our country in the last four plus years, given the government hearings where you hear elected official ask, frankly, rudimentary questions of technology leaders really validating the fact that some of them have absolutely no clue how technology works or how monetization works and how some of these companies service uh, society do you think the tech sector would 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 trust elected officials to determine ethical use of technology senator we sell ads <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, there were questions that I thought my 10-year-old would be able to answer, uh, and yet yeah. they were asked. Uh, okay. You can send an email from Facebook at 18. We'll be good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, that's exactly, Ben, what I was thinking. And that, yeah, that, no, it's, it's amazing you read my mind. That's amazing. Wow, yeah. it, <laughs> no, it's, crazy. it's crazy, isn't it? There's a, there's a new game that's being yeah. played, and the umpires, the referees, don't even understand the game. They're not so even how, in the game. They, yeah. they're not even they, in the game. How can they call a foul? How can they throw a, ye a yellow flag? Right. No, but again, that's the that's the thinking behind the the call for an establishment of this thing that we're calling a federal technology administration, staffed by people 
who do understand what's going on. Obviously, um, President Biden, to his you know credit, is bringing people like Tim Wu into the administration, and he will bring a lot of good people in behind him. So that's that's a good sign that uh, you know now, not a moment too late. People are beginning to show up who can who make these calls. But um, no, I, I think, again, the first line of our book is we love technology. We're not coming here to bury technology. We're coming here to praise technology and to say, but, but technology people and the industry need to play a role in the regulation. And to be fair to companies like Facebook and Twitter, they are, you know, making some efforts to do that. I don't, we don't deny that. Um, but that the critique that you raise, or the concern you raise, Valerie, is a good one. Uh, that uh, you know, the technology industry doesn't want to be regulated by people who don't understand what's going on. Again, that's in our view behooves the logic of putting in place something yeah. like an FTA, exactly. which does have uh, the legitimacy, the credibility, and the authority to to make calls, which ultimately are going to be good for everyone. But Ben, before you go, I want to hit one important point in your book. Yeah. We're moving to the G7, to the D7. Talk real quickly about that. And we've got about 30 seconds. Well, the G7 kind of represents power in 1946. If you were recasting the G7 today, the digital seven, no disrespect, you probably wouldn't have France or Canada in it. You'd have India, China, maybe the Republic of Facebook. So the D7 <laughs> is a very different power construct than the 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 the, uh, the G7 and uh, you know again this is the machines tame our f uh, uh, rule our future uh, and the the countries that are you know heavily invested and embedded in this technology uh, we can see already they're they're rising in prominence all, all, all the time around the world this is wonderful. We are here with Ben Pring, VP, Head of Thought Leadership and Director at Cognizant Center for Future of Work and author of his new book, Monsters. Definitely check it out. Monster, a tough love letter to the headlines, to the machines that rule our jobs, lives and future. You're going to see him in headlines everywhere. Uh, follow Benjamin Pring on Twitter and you'll get a see of what's caught, what's not. And more importantly, how our future of work and lives are being impacted by machines. So thanks a lot for being on the show, Benjamin. Thanks, ben, Thanks terrific. So Thank you, sir. Terrific. Thank Congrats you. on the book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Definitely a must-read list. Ben is just super smart. Speaking of super smart, <laughs> our, our final guest uh, today is Nicole France. Nicole's vice president and principal analyst at Constellation Research, focusing on customer experience as an enterprise-wide team sport. Nicole's research examines the interrelationship between sales, marketing service and customer engagement and how to make it work effectively. Nicole focuses on the migration path from traditional CRM to next generation customer experience strategies. Her work helps both enterprise and vendors to get most from their investments. With over 20 years of experience as both technology analyst and a practitioner, Nicole has a unique perspective on both the trends and the practicalities of effective customer engagement. You can follow Nicole on Twitter at LN France, L-N-F-R-A-N-C-E. Welcome back, Nicole, to Disrupt TV. Thanks very much, Vala. Always a pleasure to be here. Um, and I just have to say, it's um, it's a pleasure and a humorous one at that to be following Ben Pring, who is a former colleague of mine. <laughs> As we were discussing earlier, we used to share a cubicle area back in the day in Gartner's EMEA headquarters in Egham. 
Um, and I believe I was there when he first started kicking around the term software as a service. So I don't know definitively that uh, Ben was the one who came up with that one, but he certainly was one of the very first people who was talking about it widely. So there That's we go. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if he, he was the one who coined the term. It wouldn't surprise no, me. No, no, it wouldn't me either. It wouldn't me either. So what's Those were back, that was back in the day when we were talking about ASP, by the way, application service <laughs> provider. And, and Ben's whole view better. was it doesn't quite capture what's going on here. Turns out he was on to something. He was. He was. <laughs> Go jam cracker. Uh, for <laughs> that. Um, but yeah, but hey, Nicole, what's going on? What's happening? I mean, customer experience is on fire. Things are hot. Um, there are different trends popping up and, and you're covering this super closely. Um, and why do you often say customer experience is a team sport? Uh, because I think that really distinguishes you know, your point of view from everyone else's. Well, thanks, Ray. Um, there's nothing like being distinguished, right? Um, well, I'll tell you, I think part of the challenge that I see is that customer experience really is a philosophy. It's an objective. It's an organizing principle. And I think all too often, the term itself gets pigeonholed either as a different fancy way of talking about customer service or as some kind of tool set. And it's really neither of those things. Like, customer experience is essentially the idea that as a business, you are defining all of the things that you're trying to do in your customer interactions with a very clear understanding of what that looks and feels like, how it's perceived from the customer's perception, and how that builds into long-term durable customer relationships. Because, you know, let's face it, if you are not in a company that is fairly new and is in high growth mode, and even then, I think it's probably debatable, just about every company does pretty much 80% of its revenue or thereabouts with existing customers. So really this whole customer experience thing is about recognizing that the way that you succeed as a business is by finding a good mutual alignment of interests with your customers. And yes, that's reflected in commercial transactions, but it's often about a whole lot more that goes around those commercial transactions. And, and it's, it's creating that win-win relationship between you as a business and your customers. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, absolutely. Um, you recently wrote a big idea report on digital optimization. And in the report, you said digital business and experience economy is dominating much of today's discussions on how to build and maintain a successful company. But you said yet the understanding of digital business often seems to limit to engagement through digital channels, uh, a tiny slice of what <laughs> what, what, what digital optimization would encompass. You also said customer experience is too frequently viewed as an exercise in empathy rather than ways to drive results and mutual benefits to buyers and sellers. So you made very powerful statements about lack of understanding of what really digital means and how to optimize and tangible benefits of customer experience beyond just being nice. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously empathy is important. No, no, you're right, you're right, on, the money. You're right on the money, Bob, because uh, I think yeah, so, exactly. you, so, so you talked about these mental models that successful businesses need to have in their operation centers in order to develop and manage new digital products and service offerings. Can you talk about uh, this big idea report that I think, frankly, every CXO should have on their desk? I love that. Um, the kickback check is in the mail, Vala, as usual. Um, and I'll say that you know this is something that that Liz Miller and I worked on together and was was not only a very fun collaboration, but um, a very thought-provoking one along the way. Um, you know, to your point about 
customer experience at the point you raised about customer experience being about empathy. I think part of the problem is it's kind of viewed as like the warm fuzzy that doesn't really have any tangible business benefits. And that's a mistake. Um, and digital channels and you know digital operations kind of being where the focus has been so far. I think part of that is a natural and necessary evolution of our understanding as people and as businesses of what these technologies are capable of and how we need to use and manage them. So, you know, we we did have to get to grips. I mean, you know, remember back in the early 2000s when it was e-commerce that was all the rage mm -hmm. and it, you know, even after the dot bust, we finally figured out what really was was important and durable about that. And we've been on a continuous evolution just around commerce for the last 20 years along those lines right? and it's white hot now i mean i know i know headless well, commerce composable commerce microservices i'm reading more about e-commerce now than i did ever before and you're right it's 20 years plus <laughs> exactly i mean we've all been looking at this stuff for a long time yeah. you know none of us have the gray hair to show it but you know <laughs> still um <laughs> exactly but you know, and then we've add, we've added social media into the mix. We've we've added these different ways of communicating, and we've tended to look at either a channel-based view of how we communicate and interact with customers, and how we drive customers to buy stuff from us. Um, yeah, I know, Liz. Isn't it amazing? Somebody reads us. Of course, great. I do. How could that even be in a debate? Come on. Uh, absolutely. Um, and then Constellation the was my go-to place way before Disrupt TV. I just need our viewers to know that. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. People see. People still read. People still yes. read. That's all I'm gonna say. Um, and then on the other side, you know, a lot of the talk of digital transformation has really been okay. So great, you've got this awesome front end. You can you can sell stuff online. You can interact with customers through these different digital channels. Probably not in an integrated or seamless way yet, but maybe we're inching toward that. So now what are you doing with the rest of the business? Because if you aren't also digitizing all of these processes, you know, getting rid of paper is still a big deal in areas like field service, for example. Still, still, it's 2021, people. Um, but you've, you've got to digitize this stuff and that gives you both the ability to automate processes. It also gives you tremendous insight into what's happening operationally. So now when we start talking about digital products, it's time to put all these pieces together in a meaningful way. So if you think about it, if you are a fast food company selling hamburgers, you put a lot of time and effort and investment into what goes on your menu. You know, oh, yeah. what's, what's the next new hamburger that you're gonna put out? What are the ingredients that go into it? How do you test that and see if customers like it? Do you make it a special? Do you make it a permanent part of the menu? You know, these are, these are things that businesses are very comfortable with because this is the kind of product management that that we're used to doing that feels comfortable we've got the the muscles in place we've we've got the process to exercise that well well what happens when you now release an app that helps you to make sure customers can order those hamburgers from the app and then you have to consider that it's not just you know that they're doing this from home on a website where are they right what are are they going to pick it up are you going to take it to them i mean what, what becomes really interesting is whether you're selling something that is a traditional or tangible kind of product, if you're selling something like entertainment, you know, think of all the streaming media services, you know, they are very much invested in the product, which is the content, you know, what is the entertainment that they're selling? Um, you know, and, and in software, we know this extremely well, you know, the product is digital, right? If you're in, in SaaS software, this is what you're doing, this is what you're building. We have all the constructs for doing that. But the fact of the matter is in any of those businesses, 
there's also a type of digital product that is increasingly the means through which we not only communicate effectively with customers, but the way that they actually buy from us as well. Yeah. And they're very critical sources of signals and insights, but actually they're products in and of themselves. You know, they're evolving and changing. And so part of what, what Liz and I are trying to say in this digital optimization piece is that we really need to grant equal status and credit, no matter what kind of business we're in, to the way we manage those digital products as the way we do the things we're actually selling because those digital products are actually a crucial means of selling whatever it is that we do monetize. Absolutely. Ray, I just want to follow up because before that big idea report, you had also written about how uh, transforming field service when the field has changed. And in that report, you said there was a massive shift to digital commerce and remote and touchless interactions. And you said COVID uh, pandemic uh, had uh, heightened the importance of customer service and field service. So, you know, uh, I, I think it, it is a rapid, rapid changing um, areas and the behavior and expectations of customers it has leaned considerably more towards digital, digital products, digital services. So the field is changing um, and it's just important for customers to understand that, uh, you know, uh, designing products, digital products and services is 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 critically critically important. So you've written extensively about this in other reports as well. Yeah, well, and it's interesting because it, it picks up a little bit of on both of the previous conversations that you guys have had yeah, today as yeah. well. You know, I mean, serviceability, yeah. right? I mean, part part of this is, and what to me is where we really hit the sweet spot in this is where we're using all of these these digital tools and channels to do stuff that actually feels very human, that feels very personal. Um, and you know, when you get the service aspect right, it doesn't feel mechanistic. It doesn't feel like you're talking to a machine. Even if a bot is helping you get quickly to a very perfunctory answer that you need to a fairly straightforward question, you know. But this is all about designing this in context of the kinds of relationships and the kinds of, of interactions, and and yes, ultimately also the feeling that you would like your customers to have as a result of those. And it, and it I think, does come back to some of the really big, hairy questions around what happens with this incredibly pervasive uh, set of technologies that we all simultaneously take for granted and totally rely on. Um, you know, how should we be using these effectively? And I think a lot of it comes down to recognizing the very specific ways in which they can help to further something that, that is ultimately really about people. Yeah, I know. That's a great point. And it comes down to humanizing digital in almost all these interactions. Where do you see that going? Are we going to have that resistance to technology that Ben was talking about? Or are we going to see technology working with us closely, like as Darren was talking about in those moments of service? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, I, I think it's going to be both at the same time. It, it inevitably is. And it always is. I mean, let's go back to Henry David Thoreau's Walden. I mean, where he's talking about escaping technology and escaping the, the high tech demands of the industrial revolution to go and sit by a pond and contemplate, you know, and, and take his books and nothing else with him. So I think we're still very much in that kind of reflection in the 21st century as well. It is important to unplug. We probably don't do it enough. And especially after the last year, I mean, I think we've all had these conversations about how different our daily lives are because we, we don't have the travel. We don't have the work travel. We're, we're not necessarily out as much as we would have been in our personal lives. Mm -hmm. And your day is basically 
railroaded from one video conference call to another a whole lot of the time you have to carve out space to do anything that isn't one of those things you know this stuff will take over if you let it so so i think there's definitely that kind of exhaustion and resistance and the need to recognize that we we do have to unplug we do have to take a step back but at the same time where this stuff is getting really compelling is where it's very very easy to use it it serves a very well-defined need. And I think this is particularly true of artificial intelligence. And it does so in a way that's very uninvasive or non-invasive. And, and those are the kinds of things that I think we will absolutely see more and more of. And I see it happening certainly in the customer service side, where it's everything from you know, giving information prompts to an agent about you know, what the customer issue or question is, and here's the, here's probably the right stuff to help answer that question quickly, or even, you know, hey, is this what you're trying to say? I mean, like a like a glorified version of um, predictive text that we all use typically in our in our mobile phones, right? You know, these kinds of things that really help. It's the same in sales as well. And I think we're finding it in, in very many areas where what's happening is actually fairly specific and fairly limited, still helpful, but it's not it's not like we're being beaten over the head by the AI stick. And I think that's actually probably the right way to go. The AI stick will be automated, just so you know. <laughs> but, but hey, your Thoreau point. It's, it's, right? <laughs> it's just a very convincing uh, virtual assistant. Uh, no, but the Thoreau point is really who's, important. Who's, I mean, who's Thoreau responsible was fucking... for your raise? Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. The Thoreau point was very important, right? I remember his quote was like, "Our our inventions are wont to be pretty toys." which distract our attention from serious things. And I think that's the quote. I mean, it, it's still true today. Think about a hundred yeah. years later. I mean, the, the, he called it, so. Well, you know, it's funny. I used, to, I used to have a boss at Gartner actually, um, who, um, who used to say that his travel time was his time to think. He's like, you know, I don't do anything on the plane. And I, I for a long time, was a, a vehement opponent of Wi-Fi and aircraft for particularly that reason, I, you know, since changed my mind a little bit, but um, but it's true. I mean that that time Please of forced tweet, contemplation okay. is actually pretty big. So yeah, is, I mean Ray, I know that's how you used to get like seventy five percent of your work done. So. Yeah. yeah, I can't get any work done. I'm stuck on video calls. I, There's I, I no pause with Ray. He's always ran out of Botox. It. What's going on? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. When I think of uh, your advice, you and Liz, in terms of uh, uh, you know digital optimization, I, I feel like in order to achieve optimization, you need to also achieve alignment, and in order to achieve alignment, there has to be consistent understanding of terminology. <laughs> and you had written a post where you advised business leaders when it comes to customer data, because you found a persistent problem in terms of how people were describing data and it was misuse of terms, first party, second party, third party data. So can you talk about uh, the importance of uh, having consistent and accurate understanding of, of data because without it, uh, you may not understand truly the jobs to be done or those moments of service that we talked about with Darren and how alignment is key to optimization. Yeah, it's a it's an important point because you know, and I'll just tell you, I remember many years ago having um, no kidding, like a twenty minute conversation with someone about IP before either of us realized that we weren't particularly sure whether we were talking about internet protocol or intellectual property. So, <laughs> That's awesome. you know, I mean, the problem is real. Um, awesome. I, I do think that we have to be clear on what we mean, 
And um, we have to understand the origins of a lot of these terms, at least enough to know how to use them correctly, because otherwise we, we just whip ourselves into an absolutely confused frenzy and that's counterproductive. So, you know, the first party, second party, third party data thing um, really sticks in my craw because, you know, first party is stuff that you own that you collect as whatever entity is part of a two-way conversation or transaction. The second party is the other group in that interaction. So if we're talking about customer data, first party is us, the business. Second party is actually the customer. And then the third party is anybody outside of that direct interaction. And what frustrates the hell out of me is, is second party data has kind of become this like placeholder apparently that mm -hmm. people choose to add whatever meaning they want to it. And it's completely inaccurate and it's wrong because it confuses the whole matter. So very briefly, I would say, you know, think about it. If you remember writing class in high school, you know, first person voice, third person voice, you know, I am writing as me, she is writing as her. Who's the second party? Who's, who, who's the second voice? Second voice is actually your reader, right? Mm. So, so the reader and the customer here play very much the same role. They've got awesome. something going on, right? They've got their own views, but you don't necessarily have visibility into that and that's okay. So I will say I credit a conversation with, um, with a couple of folks at Adobe and, and Asa Whitlock for coming up with this. Um, which is, you know, maybe we need to stop talking about what party data it is, and we need to start thinking more in data tiers. And by that, I mean something like, you know, first tier data is the stuff that you know as an organization you collect, you clearly understand the source, you understand the quality of the data and the accuracy of the data. You know, and you have different tiers of data that that maybe reflect the degree of control that you have over it, the degree of reliability that it has, and possibly even the degree of value that it has as well. So something to throw out there for next time, maybe. Very cool. Hey, Very cool. Awesome. We're here with Nicole France, uh, VP and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, covering customer experience as a team sport. And more importantly, you can follow her on Twitter at Ellen France for insightful thoughts, and of course, her webinars, videos, and speeches. And of course, she's a CRM player. So we'll see CRM player. <laughs> and read her reports. Read her reports. <laughs> read her reports. Thank you, Nicole. So, you're terrific. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you both. Happy thanks. Friday. Uh, you've got some smart people on your team, Ray. Just remarkable people. Kudos. I can't complain. Uh, I, you know, I know you get a little bit of credit for recruiting and retaining these folks. Uh, really, really smart. Uh, and yeah, I often peruse the Constellation site for uh, for wisdom. Um, okay, well, that was episode 235. Next week is episode 236. We're inching our way towards 800 interviews that Ray and I have done. So it will happen this calendar year. So that's a pretty awesome milestone. In, in my humble opinion. <laughs> Viraj Padawadan, Vice President Academic Digital Learning at Thomas Jefferson University. Uh, we have Angela Blanchard, Senior Fellow Watson Institute at Brown University. Yep. And Walter Otto, Chief Digital and Innovation Officer at Deloitte Africa and faculty member of the Singularity University, South Africa. So we have practitioner academic big brains next week. <laughs> I'm going to have a hearty lunch and breakfast <laughs> to prep for next week. <laughs> Ray, uh, your closing remarks on a CEO of an exceptional company, IFS, that's absolutely delighting their stakeholders at moments of service. And uh, Ben, who's a futurist and really one of the top future of work visionaries, best-selling authors uh, that you and I know, 
and of course, uh, Nicole, who always comes and hits a grand slam as uh, you know, an absolute experienced practitioner and futurist and expert. <laughs> hey, you know what? It's important, right? As we enter the digital age, we have to humanize digital. Uh, the empathetic approach is important. And we see how experiences have translated to all types of stakeholders, suppliers, partners, employees, customers. They're all coming together. And that experience is guided by what level of context we can provide. In a digital world, every choice we make is a demand signal. We have attribution to location, to uh, weather, to your sentiment, to who you're hanging out with. And this is actually powering our future to build what we call business graph. That business graph on the back end is giving us the ability to deliver a mass personalization at scale in all cross industries, organizations, and enterprises. This is what's going to be super exciting to watch over the next 24 months as organizations start figuring out how to build their business graph and make that movement forward. Analytics, automation, and AI are what's driving this. And what we saw with the three guests is really that conversation point starting to converge around what mass personalization at scale is going to be like and what those moments of service might be. So very, very exciting. And we're going to be following this for the next 24 months uh, as a research topic. That's amazing, Ray. And next week, I want you to share with our audience your 30-city book tour that starts in June and ends in, I don't know, July, August. But you're going to be all around the country uh, engaging with your readers. And uh, I think the Disrupt TV audience would love to learn more about your plans. Yeah, we're definitely going to do that. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, Robots and Pencils and IFS. Uh, more importantly, thank you to our watchers, viewers, listeners all across the board. Uh, we really appreciate all your input, your ideas, and of course, uh, your time with us. So thanks a lot. Have a happy Friday. Thanks, everyone.